Hello and welcome to the Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it, coach. G'day, everybody, and welcome back to part two of my interview with Joe Hammer. So if you missed part one, please check out the episode that we released last week and enjoy part two where we take a deep dive into all concepts relating to teaching and coaching. Enjoy. Let's talk about your been doing a lot of research lately and you're about to travel around America, even stopping at Denver, Colorado, <laughs> I hope. Um, so can you tell us what you're going to be speaking on and a little bit more about the things that, that really ignite your curiosity? So, yes. Um, <laughs> the Without going into too much information about the research itself, the, the premise of it is there – that we have preferences for the way we like to communicate. Um, there's a bit of a misnomer in education, and I'll probably get some people who are very ready to disagree with me on this, and that's totally fine, about learning styles and, and learning preferences. So learning styles has been sort of debunked as not being effective. And in many regards, I 100% agree with that. So when someone says, oh, I'm a visual learner, or, you know, which is the common one that people will go to, it's not necessarily true they're not a visual learner which means they only learn through pictures so there's a tool that um, I've been using for quite some time it's some research um, by a guy called Neil Fleming um, and it's called the VARC modality so VARC standing for visual um, auditory read write and kinesthetic and where this is different is it it's very much talking about learning preferences as a part of a style not the style and I think that's a really important distinction And what I've looked at is if students are aware of their learning preferences, which is they're both their input and output of communication and people have different preferences in that area, then they can actually feel more confident in themselves as a learner. Because as you and I spoke about before, you said you didn't think you were very smart at school, but it's potentially because you were trying to use communication methods that were not effective for you. Um, you probably now are very much aware that you have a preference for auditory communication. That is both listening and talking. And kinesthetic. And then kinesthetic. i gotta, I got to touch it. i got to feel it. i got to do it. And kinesthetic is not just physical activity. Because I'll just give you one example. When kids go, oh, my score for kinesthetic was really high, but I can't, you know, run around when I'm doing an exam. And I'm like, no, it's kinesthetic is not actually always about being physically active. It's about action. So action can be in a literary form, which is things like step-by-step processes. So as an example, um, in the VARC tool, it gives you four scenarios of how you might go about something. And the simplest one is you get some new technology. You know, do you read the instructions? Do you watch a YouTube clip? Do you just get in there and have a crack at it yourself or do you ask someone how to do it? And when you when you look at it in that, you go, oh, yeah, which one would I do? And all of a sudden you kind of go, oh, that makes sense. I don't like reading the instructions because I that's not the communication preference that I have. So I, my research is around helping the students to use this VARC tool, figure out what their learning preferences are. And I want to point out that these are not fixed things either. So VARC does not say you are a visual learner. It's not a... It's not like a 
fixed personality that can have different iterations of it. We can work on things that are not our strength or are not our preference to improve on them so that we can, you know, again, if you, to use the sporting analogy, if you're really, I'm going to use tennis, Sam, and you know it's not my sport, but if you're really good at serving but not volleying, you don't just go, well, that's it. I'm only going to serve for the game and I'm never going to work on my volley. In fact, we work on the volley to make that a better part of our toolkit. So the same is true in this learning preferences where students who come out as particularly strong in one preference over another, you go, that's great. So that's that's your that's your comfort zone. When you've got choice in how you learn something, that's what you're going to do. You're going to watch a YouTube clip if you're, you know, visual, or you're going to read a book or instructions or whatever it might be. But then you go, okay, well, let's think about when we might need some of these other tools. And, and in VARC, they give you a whole list of strategies. It's not one thing. If you're this, you do that. It's really quite broad in saying, well, there's a lot of different ways that this can express itself. And so we keep just going back to that list and going, okay, well, that one didn't work. Let's try something else. So what I love about it is, first of all, knowing a bit more about how you learn. Like one of the thing, one of the units I teach in my year 10 elective, which is called Chaos Lab, and it's chaos because learning is chaotic, but it also is an acronym for some things. The first unit is called Learning to Learn, which is kind of a bit ironic at year 10 that <laughs> we're learning how to learn. But the students are like, oh, my God, I never thought of that before, which is music to my ears, of course, and it means I'm actually being effective. But the whole notion is you come away from doing that subject going, actually, I'm in control. It's not the teacher's fault. It's not my parents' fault. It's the choices that I'm making in the way that I go about learning. So we know that highly capable students, whether they're five or 15 or 50, they're very aware of how they like to learn, how they like to communicate, and therefore they're very independent in that process. But the majority of people aren't. And, of course, young people aren't. They're learning that. That's why they go to school. So being able to explicitly outline for some young people, hey, you know that if this isn't working for you, that there's other strategies that you can do. And, and it's in some ways, you know, it, of course, it's not rocket science, but unless we explicitly sit down to think about it, we can make assumptions and then, you know, we're unhappy, we're struggling. In my class just this morning, we were looking at problem-solving strategies and, you know, they, they love it, but they're also a bit like, oh, why are you explaining this to us, miss? But at the end, they're like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense because we unpack the thinking behind the behaviours. And as soon as you can do that for them, they go, yeah, actually... Like even in my class this morning, I'm sorry, I get so this. I'm really impassionate about it. Even in my class this morning, we were <laughs> we did this summarising task, and then I said, okay, tell me what your summary statements are. And I was giving them like, nah, that one's not a good summary. And they're like, what? And I said, let's point out why it's too long, or it's got too many things, or that's irrelevant information. And this pair <laughs> were furiously then typing. I said, what are you two doing? They're like, well, we're just fixing the other ones. And I'm like, why are you fixing them? Well, because you said, you know, it, it didn't need this and it had that and we should have this. So now we want to go and change our other statements so that they're actually right. That wasn't the task. The task was let's think about how we can be more efficient. And these kids are going, okay, I'm listening and I'm making a change. So we haven't done the VARC bit in this class yet, but I see how these kids are responding to things and I'm like, I know how they're going to turn out. That gives me an in to help build that 
confidence in those students. My whole thing is about building people's confidence in who they are and how they can actually learn more efficiently efficiently and have more self-confidence so that learning is fun. Like, you know, you and I are people who love to learn stuff. We have a natural curiosity. So learning is an enjoyable experience, but it's not for a lot of people. So if I can make a small number of students a little bit happier about learning, then who knows what they can go on and, and do. Oh, and, and even with you heading over to the States and sharing your message one to many, I think you know, this is the power of, of, of what you're talking about. The one thing I want to pick up on that I think is super interesting for coaches is that when we get hold of this information and as coaches, the more you can be an expert in modalities and numerous strategies so that when we teach, we're not just teaching one way or the way that we were taught or the way that works best for Mm. us. So everything's about conscious awareness, isn't it? Like you have to bring it first to the surface Everything starts with awareness. It doesn't matter. And as a coach or a teacher, you have to be objective because I'm very passionate about it. Every time I do this with a class of students, they're like, oh, Miss, are you doing the the test as well? I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. They're curious about what – I mean, I, to be honest, normally come out as fairly multimodal, but that's because I've been working on this for a long time. You know, that's something that I'm conscious about, making sure that I'm tapping into. And because I'm regularly – engaging with students about what's working and what's not working I'm always just adjusting and adapting and those sorts of things but I go into all of those classes or any conversation that I have with an objectivity like I'm very biased about this is valuable and I think it does have an impact but I would always say I don't it doesn't matter to me what your VARC score is it doesn't matter what your modality is as a teacher I should be the chameleon I should be able to adapt and I want to be really clear This is not saying teachers should teach to each individual learning preference. As teachers, we should be differentiating. As teachers, we should be having multimodal learning environments, whether that's across a lesson or across a series of lessons. So please don't misunderstand me in that sense. But as a teacher, your job is to know who's in front of you. You know, eights or standard number one is know your students and how they learn. Well, that means figure out what learning methods work for them and it's learning is all about communication so having that unbiased objective view of I don't it doesn't matter to me who's in front of me except it does matter because if I know who's in front of me then I can teach the student in front of me and also you can tailor it here's the correct me if I'm wrong the project or whatever it might be and then it's about how you specifically help each person to get to completion. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's simple as, like, here's the, here's the document that outlines a task and, you know, I will always have colour and imagery on mine because that I think that's more engaging. Now, the, the student who is dominant in that read-write space couldn't care less about it, but they almost don't even see the colour or the image. But the student who is visual or kinesthetic actually needs those things. They need those cues of where's the heading, what does the image tell me, like what, what's not being said there. But then for the auditory learner, we, we have a conversation about it. And when I say, who's got questions, you know, or let's throw some questions out there, that tells me who are the auditory kids who need me to come and have an extra conversation with them. So that being open, as you said, to, you know, all the different modalities and then being able to respond to that, that's, that's the secret, you know. 
Oh, end of the school day. <laughs> Real life in a school. <laughs> I'm not even going to edit that bit out. I love it. I love it. Uh, so I had a great mentor once that also taught me about the value of when the when the penny drops as well. Like he was talking about, you know, the people who um, learn during the task, the people that learn that you know, that night after the task mm. and the people that learn even the next day when, when you come back. And I think sometimes as coaches we want to be able to, to, to say, and this is one of my idiosyncratic statements that I, I sometimes, like 1% of the time I'll catch myself saying, does that make sense? Like, oh, like, I mean, who's that it's sentence it's even it's for? Yeah. It's like such a gross statement. Uh, so... I really loved that because it may make sense to this student, this mentor, yeah, next time you see them or in, in a week's time or when you've furthered the learning process. So I, I love that concept as it relates to, to what you're talking about. Uh, so Can I just add to that though? Please. I, yeah. I, look, I'm guilty of that and I, again, one of my vulnerable moments, I had a, a class a couple of years ago who kept a tally of how often I said it. But again, they shared that with me. So then I was like, oh my goodness, okay, I need to change the language. It is, it's an easy thing that rolls off the tongue. But yeah, 100% right. It has no value if you don't get the feedback. One of the things that I'm much more conscious of, and I use this far more regularly, and I'm, I really try to do this. And again, it's reading the room. Because often I'll talk about stuff and I'm like, okay, th- this is new information. This is not stuff that they've learned before and those sorts of things. So my question is, are you still with me? And I'll do a bit of a, give me a half hands up if like, I'm kind of with you, miss, but you're pretty close to losing me. No, no, I'm totally on board with you. Or like no hands up if like you lost me like four sentences ago or whatever it might be. And so then I use that as a quick bit of feedback and then I'll be like, okay, where did I lose you? What's the last thing that made sense to you? Now that slows down the lesson at times or that slows down the conversation. But why keep going if people aren't with you? So... Yes. Does that make sense? Is is almost more of a punctuation to stop me from going any further. And it's not what they say. It's the body language that says, nope, you did not make sense. So then that triggers me to ask that question. Are you still with me? Where did I lose you? And and it, sometimes that's me prompting them to go, did you get this bit? Okay, great. Tell me, tell me how you understood that. So that whole idea of checking for understanding. I try not to ask too many closed questions that give the, particularly students, to give them the out to go, yeah, yeah, we're good. And then they go home and they don't. But I, I also appreciate, and I'm becoming much more aware of this, of that notion of some kids will get stuff straight away. Some kids, some students, need to go home and re-look at it or they need to ponder it and they might come back the next day. And that's where in the classroom it's really important we make connections from one lesson to the next. Okay, tell me what we did yesterday. Tell me where we left off. Let's see if we can build on that. And that's also hard to do because you've got so much you want to get through in your lesson. But I imagine in coaching that's the same. Hey, last week we focused on your volley, to pick up that same analogy from earlier. Okay, let's, what, what do you remember about that? Okay, okay, well, today we're going to keep working on that. Or, well, from the bo- volley we can go to the chip shot, whatever it might be. And I think that that being really conscious of what questions are we using to actually get the feedback that we need to see if 
what we're doing is actually being effective is hugely important. And we don't need a massive number of phrases for that. Things like, are you still with me? Where did I lose you? Or tell me what makes sense. Those sorts of little sentence starters are really important for us to kind of make sure we are listening. Tell me what you remember. Any sort of curiosity style uh, questions I think are so valuable. And I think building from lesson to lesson, just a nice reminder, sometimes we can easily get caught in the rat race of just like week one this, week two this, and not actually building a through line as well. Mm. I think that's super important. You know, as teachers, we have curriculum that we need to deliver, but I guarantee you that the way every school teaches the Australian curriculum or Victorian curriculum, wherever you are, if you're in another country, from one school to the next, it's going to be different because people are different. We are, as I said earlier, we teach the students in front of us. Yes, we have content to get through, but we have to be guided by them as to how they are engaging with that I have two year nine classes for the exact same subject and the way that I teach those two classes is very, very different. Now, it's a cross-curricular, multidisciplinary subject that's about building learning skills, but I could go in and go, right, today we're doing this and tomorrow we're doing that and you're either on on board with it or you're not and I'm going to lose kids if I do that. So knowing, okay, what's our goal? What should we be trying to achieve? And it's usually one or two things. In education, we have learning intentions and success criteria. This is common knowledge. This comes out of high-impact teaching strategies. It comes out of Hattie's effect size. Sorry, Hattie. Um, It's about what do you want to do and what does that look like if you can actually do it? In our setting, there's usually only one, maybe two learning intentions and usually only two or three success criteria for any given lesson. But you've got lots of different learning activities and resources that are going to help you find your way to those success criteria. And whilst we would love every student to be able to say, yeah, I can say that I can do X, Y and Z, they can't always do it at the end of the lesson. But there's signposting along the way. But, you know, it doesn't have to be a straight line. You know, you can go round and round in circles. You can go backwards and forwards. It doesn't really matter how you get there as long as you actually get there. And I think what happens sometimes when we're leading people or coaching people, teaching people, we as the leader or coach, we get there because we already know what the, what the answer Where is. We're or what going. The, yeah. And we forget to check. So, you know, there's, again, that adage of we lead from behind. You don't lead at the front, look back and go, hang on, I've left them, you know, wherever, three streets away, whatever the analogy is. But if we lead from being walking with them or being part of it, then we know where everyone is at any given time. So we've always got sight on who's sort of straying or who's a bit slower or a bit faster. So I want to go there next. How do you deal with the superstar student that totally gets what you said, gets a first time, and you've asked a question like, you know, let me know where you're at, and 90% of the class uh, maybe they're raising their hand halfway, which, by the way, is a great strategy. I love that not putting people on the spot to verbally just to be able to show show of hands is a really great strategy. Simple but mm, really effective, effective yeah. um, because there's plenty of coaches who've got that superstar athlete in their in their world as well. And but it's a group environment. So mm. you, have you got a top tip around that? I mean, I again, I go back to 
eight till standard one, know your students how they learn. So I already... Sorry, you lost me. Haven't heard of that. Eight till is the um, Australian Institute of Teaching Standards, effectively. So basically, as teachers, what we should be able to do. So it goes back to the basics of know your students and how they learn. It's a standard that we have as teachers that we should be able to do. AITSL is the governing body who outlines those standards. And it's standard one. So whether you've got a high-performing student or a student who's really, you know, being challenged academically because it's a struggle, that's my job as the teacher to know that. So when I come into the lesson, I'm already prepared for this student is going to be all over this. So... I'm going to make sure that I've got a couple of things lined up for that student. Now, that could be in some instances, hey, you're going to get through this super quick. So if you want to go on with something else just to fill in some time while we do other bits and pieces, that's totally fine. Or you could hey, jump on this website, have a bit of an explore of that. So it's invitational, but it's also options in there. And the reason I'm saying sometimes we allow a high-performing student to go on with something else is they're probably already organised. They probably know what they want to get done and they will appreciate that little bit of, yeah, that's great. If you help me do that, then I can do this other thing later on. But it also means that they're not a distraction because sometimes really capable students are bored and boredom can manifest in lots of different ways, but the extremes are sit there and read a book and don't bother anyone or annoy your friends because why, why not? You've got nothing else to do. So... The strategy is know who's in your class and what is going to work for them but also know what you're going to teach them so you know how long it's going to take someone. So again, if I look at one of my Year 9 classes, I've got a student who I know is going to be keeping up with me right from the get-go. So when I'm introducing a task, there's a bit of, here's what we're doing today. I'm just going to give you a little sneak preview about where we're going. You don't need to do this bit yet. But I just want to know where we're going with it. Now, that particular student, she was straight into that. And I'm like, oh, that's great. I knew you'd do that. So what I want you to do now is go back and have a think about this. So go back and revisit what you've done. Let's see if we can make that a little bit better. So, you, again, it's just knowing who's in your class and how are you going to make sure that you've got little individual strategies for them. That's a big task. Now, I'm lucky in the sense that I don't have a lot of classes. So, again, I, for the teachers who are listening, I don't want to be like, yeah, but you don't have 500 kids. No, I don't. And I acknowledge that 100%. But there are ways that you can be really efficient in getting to know your kids. We're lucky we have a whole lot of different data sets, whether that's quantitative academic data or wellbeing data or a great collaboration community that allows us to say, how do you help this student and what's going on for that student? But I think that if you are a teacher that's innately what you want to be doing. Who's in front of me and how do I help that person? And it's not saying every kid's on a personalised learning plan or those sorts of things. But there's, a, you know, if I go back to that strategy of when I mark the role, find out something about them, there's a way to know that person. Connect, yeah. So what's the difference between a teacher and a coach? The, the simplest answer is there's not a difference. There is someone in front of us or there are people in front of us who are there to learn a skill or learn content, or both, and our job is to help them to learn that. Probably the difference is teachers see their students more frequently than the average coach will see their coachee. I mean, if you're a professional tennis player, you're probably talking to your coach every day. But 
that, that to me that's the difference we see teachers have more people that they're coaching and they see them more regularly but the job that they're doing to me is fundamentally the same mm, unlocking the learning isn't it there's there is that hat of the expert in a subject maths mm. science etc uh, same as a mentor who's got the wisdom of experience. I think it is a beautiful balance of wearing, knowing when to wear what hat to unlock the mm. learning. So, But I think, Em, and that's why, you know, getting you to come and talk to our middle leaders and, and the whole idea of coaching in schools is not that stereotypical sports coach who's out the front going, here's our strategy to, to play the game, to win the game, whatever it might be. It is that idea that a coach... We, to plug your book, as I said to you the other day, um, our senior leadership team is reading the book. We're unpacking a chapter at a time and, and those sorts of things. One practice at a time. One practice at a time, indeed. <laughs> um, and, you know, we were, we were talking about this idea about what is, what is a coach in leadership and, and, and how does that differ from a leader. And, you know, one of my things, one of my comments was, you don't often see the coach. Like you see the product of the coaching in the player in the sporting field. The same happens in teaching or in leadership. It's not the, 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 the coach leader who is getting the recognition. It should be what the coachee or the person that you're working with or the student is actually producing and presenting. And equally, in the sporting world, I imagine that more traditional coaches are there to say, I'm here to teach you strategy. I'm here to teach you how to unpack your opposition. I don't care about your well-being. I don't care about what's going on in your personal life. I don't care about anything else. But actually effective coaches are really across the whole person. So I think that's where teachers can learn from coaches about how they interact and, and it's not me at the front you will obey me and you will follow me, but I'm going to guide you on a learning journey. But I think coaches can learn from teachers about coaching the whole person. Do you know what I mean? Totally. So I, th I think that there's a really nice kind of symbiotic relationship between traditional teaching, traditional coaching, where if actually we take the best of both of those things and we end up with this sort of super coach, super teacher is amazing. And, and the benefits for the people who that they're working with is only going to be positive yeah and and on that note even today I think as sports coaches we don't often think enough about the learning intentions of, of a lesson what you know and being really uh, uh, prepared around learning intentions you know that's a great thing that sports coaches can learn from teachers so so I love that all right uh, as we round up this episode, which is definitely going to have to be two parts because I couldn't stop it any earlier it was way too too interesting uh, Who's been one of your best leaders, you know, role models, leaders, um, and, and why would, what, what do you think made them a great leader? Um, I'm going to go back to someone who um, was my, one of my bosses, in, not in the teaching world, it's in my food industry career. So fresh out of uni, <laughs> it's a fun story. I worked for a meat wholesaler which was a bit random. I never knew this. I, yeah, I was going to say, I don't yeah. think you even know this. So I did a food science degree. Um, I did an applied science degree, sorry, majoring in food and textiles. Got a job in the food industry. It was a meat wholesaler. And the company was run by three guys who were butchers turned businessmen. Um, and the I, I got a customer service job. Um, 
and then kind of worked my way up to sort of different jobs and things like that. But there are two people in that company and I talk about this quite often in terms of people who made me the person that I am in the workplace today. The first one, he was um, in charge of the production floor. And I'm talking this was a very big company doing some pretty cool things um, in terms of packaged meat portions and things like that. When I started, the first two weeks was you don't go and do your job. You're going to go and work with all the other sections in the business. So I was out on the uh, in the boning room, which is where they, you know, bring the carcasses in and they're chopping them up. I was out on the packing floor. I was out with the driver because his philosophy was you can't be good at your job until you know how your job impacts everybody else. So I'm talking I was 22 years old practically the very first lesson I learned in the real world. And I was like, that's actually really good. And that's always stuck with me. So I would hope that people would say that about me, that when I ask people to do things, it's because I understand what they need or what I need and how it all fits together. His other part to that is don't ask someone to do something that you're not prepared to do yourself. So I have this funny story about him. He wanted a very large number of particular size cuts of meat for a very big client, a very big Melbourne client. And one of the butchers is like, nah, mate, can't be done, can't be done. He goes, can't be done? Watch me. And he got out there and he was, you know, chopping up this meat and he said, how many did I do in this time? Multiply it, get it done. And the butcher was like, okay, yep, all right. I can't argue with that. The other person in that company um, was the general manager and he, he said to me, I was, I'd moved through a couple of different roles and I was working in the, as part of the sales team, coordinating the team. And I was getting a bit frustrated with some stuff and he said to me, Joe, I said, yes, Pete. Shout out to Peter Wern. He works at the MCC now. Legend, I will never forget this bit of advice. He said, Joe, there's over 200 people that work in this company and about eight of us have been to university and even less finished high school stop expecting people to come to your level you're the one who's got the education you've got to come down to their level and I was like meet them where they're at meet them where they're at and I was like that's a valid point Pete and I can't actually argue with that so I'm going back now like this is you know 25 years ago and those two bits of information have always stuck with me and I've brought them into education Ironically, yeah, you know, as a teacher, you work with people at where they're at. But in the workplace, and when, when we deal with peers and colleagues, that's a really important message. Don't expect everyone to be where you're at. There'll be people who will be higher than you and lower than you, more capable than you, less capable than you. But a good colleague, a good leader, a good peer recognises who's around you and what, what do they bring to the table. And, and you know, I always... Keep those two things in my mind. You know, don't do things that – don't ask people to do things that you're not prepared to do yourself, but also, you know, be, be the person who adapts. Be the one who goes to others. Don't wait for them to come to you. The great connector, yeah. Joe Hammer. 
It has been an honour and a pleasure (laughs) spending this time with you. You're too kind. (laughs) I love hanging out. Can't wait to do it in Denver, Colorado. Yes, I'm so excited. Later this year. And I'm so happy that you're able to spread your message one to many around the world. It's such an important... (laughs) You're making that sound far more fancy than it is, mate. Because it is a conference that's part of a program and I'm extremely proud and privileged to have been part of it. And I've made some really good connections in that, but... You're you're inflating it a little bit, I think. So have we met? (laughs) Step into your greatness. I'm not letting you get away with that. I'm not editing that out either. My job is to... It's true. ...allow you to step into the the brilliance that that you bring to the world and being around the school, being around the ethos of the school, you know, she who belongs, she who thrives, just that that message alone um, really is what you are living and breathing at this school and you can only do it you yes i i agree you're only one cog in a massive wheel 100% and it i'm not saying you're the leader of of the cog i'm saying you you're you're a critical part of it to bring even you're ahead of your time to say that a coaching culture in schools is is the way of the future you and i passionately we mm. believe this we well we live and breathe it as well don't we in, mm. in the way that we that we coach and, and we teach. So all you coaches out there, I hope you also have two pages of notes like I do and pay it forward, please. Share the podcast, share it with a friend if you've enjoyed listening. And Joe, thank you so much for bringing your authentic self uh, to the coaching podcast. Thank you so much, Em. And I'm so privileged to have you as my friend and I'm so super duper proud of you. Um, and thank you for this opportunity. It's been so much fun. Thanks everybody. Bye for now. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by Transition Coach for Athletes, a global coaching, mentoring and US placement service. The service helps athletes navigate the often challenging world of choosing your best college fitness performance. Visit www.transitioncoachforathletes.com. That's the number four.